Hello, product innovators. Today, we learn from a 40-year marketing professor and author of 30 marketing books on the fundamentals of modern invention marketing tactics. You're listening to the Product Startup Podcast, the show that helps bring your product idea to life by chatting with successful inventors, product developers, manufacturers, and hardware industry professionals. Our goal here is to get to the bottom of what makes a product successful, from initial idea to getting your product on store shelves. We're taking you step-by-step to build a functional product and scale your product business. Hosted by Kevin Mako, one of North America's leading experts on hardware development for small product businesses. Now, on to the show. Welcome back, everyone. Today, I'm very excited to introduce Michael Solomon to the show. Michael's been teaching marketing for 40 years. He currently is a marketing professor at St. Joseph's University in Philadelphia. He's written almost 30 books, including many marketing textbooks. His most recent book is called The New Chameleons. It's all about modern marketing lessons. Today, Michael is going to share some valuable knowledge on how inventors, startups, and small manufacturers can learn from the fundamentals of modern-day marketing, but also how to apply these marketing tactics to your new invention products. Now, on to the episode. Michael, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me. Excited to have you on. I understand you've written almost 30 books? Yeah, yeah. Well, I I have. I mean, it, it beats working for a living, I guess. You know, when you're an academic, we say uh, publish or perish and that's there's some truth to that. So yeah, we've got to keep turning out those books. Um, many of them are textbooks, but a few of them, including uh, my most recent one, are are trade books that you might find hopefully at an airport bookstore or something like that. So uh, yeah, I love to write books. Well, we'll have to talk about your most recent book too, as we're getting through it, because it relates to the subject matter of marketing today. Um, but give us a bit of a background on yourself, going back to maybe some of the first books you wrote. Yeah, sure. Well. Um, As you can tell by my silver hair, I've been at this for a while. Um, I've been a marketing professor for about 40 years at different schools, uh, both here and and overseas. And I am a consumer psychologist. So uh, my background is, is psychology. And what I study is why we buy and what it is that marketers can do to, uh, to really sync what they have to offer with what people are looking for and convincing people that they have a better solution, which is not as easy as as it always sounds. So I've had the opportunity, in addition to writing my books, uh, I've had the opportunity to work with uh, a number of of big clients in uh, in a variety of verticals, um, including hardware and and household products, as well as uh, apparel, cosmetics, automotive, financial services, and so on. And and uh, these businesses all sound very different, but you know, one one thing that startups need to keep in mind, and, and established uh, companies need to keep in mind, is that you can often learn a lot by not just by benchmarking yourself for what your direct competitors are doing, say in your own business, but to also look at best practices in some of these other verticals. So, uh, my career has been a series of kind of hopping around and, and having having the chance to work on problems in different industries. And the more I do that, the more I realize how much they're all the same. You know, it's all, it's all about uh, creating something that really is going to resonate with customers and, and really uh, eliminate the need to market the product. Actually, you know, there's a, a famous expression by Peter Drucker, who, a very well-known management theorist back in the day. And, and he said, the, the aim of marketing is to make selling superfluous. In other words, 
if you've done such a great job of coming up with a product idea, taking it to market, et cetera, in theory, you shouldn't have to sell it because people will just grab it because you found something that they wanted. Now, that's uh, that happens in the ideal world, not so much in the real world. Yeah. Well, this is why I was really looking forward to having you on the show because I think it's incredibly important for hardware startups and people developing new products, whether it be in the entrepreneurial mindset or whether at a five, Fortune 500 company, it's important to really understand the fundamental principles of marketing, which is, you know, and you've had plenty of experience working with a number of hardware companies, including Black & Decker and such. So yeah. break it down. Where do we even start in understanding if, if, if we're looking at marketing, um, a fresh eyes approach, how do we understand the basics? And then I'd love to hear some of your you know, best practices that you've seen over 40 years of working with a variety of different companies yeah. on executing and best practices in marketing. Sure. Well, you know, I'll start by telling your audience the same thing I tell my audience, which is my students um, every semester. And, and that is that in marketing, we start at the end and work backwards. And that, that fundamental principle right there is something that especially I think in the space you're dealing with, uh, a lot of people ignore. And what I mean by this is that we don't start at the beginning where we have some wonderful new product that we've come up with. And then we make it or maybe, you know, we prototype it. And then we say, yeah, okay, I wonder who will buy this. And I've worked with some very large companies um, over the years. And I've been really surprised at how many of them have that, that perspective. You know, they, they may literally have Nobel Prize winners working in their laboratories. These guys can invent anything. The problem is that they invent the stuff and then the marketing swings in, into operation. That is not the way it should work. So uh, what you want to do is start at the end by identifying an unmet need or a need that could be met better. And once you do that, which is, you know, that's the hard part. Everything else, if you've done that correctly, everything else will flow naturally, which means that now you start to walk it backward where you say, okay, now that I've identified this gap between how people are doing, you know, whether it's hanging a picture or, uh, you know, building a cabinet or whatever it is, um, how can I now create an offering, product or service or both, that that will meet that need? And how can I convince people that I have what we call a unique value proposition or a unique sales proposition or selling proposition that's sometimes called uh, that is better than the competition and is accessible to these people. So if you're able to do that, these are all big ifs, of course, uh, then, then you start looking at the tactical aspects of, of marketing. And so, you know, it's important for everyone to understand the difference between a strategy and a tactic. So I'm talking 30,000 foot, you know, look here. Um, but too often we confuse the two. And my students really struggle with this. A tactic is just a means to an end. But you first have to define what the goal is before you can create the tactics to reach it. So too often, uh, companies, startups, and big companies are starting with the tactics, like the famous four Ps of marketing. Those are tactical weapons that we have, and we can talk more about those four Ps. Um, but First, we need to have that underlying strategy to understand where we're going. So once we have that underlying strategy, that's where we bring in 
the ammunition that we have. So we have those famous four P's that everybody's probably heard of. I, I like to call it to pee or not to pee. That is the question. <laughs> um, <laughs> you know, uh, product, place, promotion, and price. You know, they, we've been talking about these for 40 or 50 or 60 years or something. Uh, sometimes people want to add a fifth P or a sixth P like people or public relations and things like that. The, the point is that we have these, uh, the ways to, to position our offering using the four P such as price, for example. So uh, a lot of people don't understand that price, it can be a tactical weapon, not just an afterthought. You know, the way you price your new offering sends a signal about the quality of that offering. So if you price something very high and people people assume it's high quality, they may not buy it because they can't afford it, but you're sending a signal. So my, my point is that all of these aspects of the 4P should be used proactively and in sync with the other. So we never just set a price without thinking about promotion or place, which is how we're gonna distribute the product or the product itself. All of these things ideally are a package and they all go together. That's great. Now let, let's j- jump into that's a, I really appreciate the helicopter view. I want to look at strategy and the four P's. Can you explain the difference between the two and jump into a bit more about what you mean by marketing strategy? Right. Well, you know, when you have a strategy and hopefully you have one, um, you know, and quite honestly, a lot of startups don't have strategies. They're just too busy trying to, you know, stay afloat. But um, ideally, you have a strategy, which means you have objectives where you where you you want to be, not just tomorrow, but in the next quarter, in the next year, maybe even in, in the next three to five years. And that's where the planning comes in. So the four P's again depend on the on your objective. So let's say, for example. Um, the, the strategic vision of my company is that um, I want to be responsible for 20% of the widgets that people buy for this particular application in the next five years, right? So that, that's a good strategy. Now, is it realistic? I, I'm not sure. But it's a strategy. And what that means is you want to orient your tactics in order to achieve that strategy. So for example, if, as I said, your strategy is basically to build awareness and get lots of new users to try your product, then that tells you that you may, for example, want to keep the price fairly low. Uh, you're going to need to promote heavily and repeatedly, uh, even if it's just the brand name, because if it's a new product, people aren't aware of that. You, you can't just remember um, the buying decision is a process. It's a series of steps. It is not just, we don't just wake up one morning and say, oh, you know, Kevin just brought a new widget to market. I think I'll buy that today. It's it's like a courtship process. You know, you don't usually propose after the first date, although I guess it's happened. Um, <laughs> you know, it's a courtship process. And each time you go on another date, you're learning more about the other person, et cetera. Or you may decide that you don't want to learn more about them. That's fine. Um, but you need to have that, that in mind. So uh, if my objective and again, that's not that may not be my objective. My objective may be to, for example, make my existing customers even more loyal than they are now. That might require a different usage of the four P's. But but the idea is whatever your end strategy is in terms of, of your market entry and market growth, that's when you start to tailor 
the the weapons that we have, like the price that we set and the messages that we create, where we sell the product, et cetera. That's where we do that stuff. We don't just do that stuff and then figure out, well, it would be nice to uh, grab 20% share in five years. Again, that's putting the cart before the horse. And the you know really marketing 101 is marketing is about meeting people's needs and doing it better than the competition. So uh, really your objective, as I said earlier, the, the most important thing is to make sure that what you're selling satisfies a genuine need. There have been many instances. I'll give you a quick example, one that just, just came to mind. There was a deodorant product that came out, personal care product that came out some years, a few years ago. And uh, its distinctive offering compared to the all the other thousands of deodorants of the market was that uh, it, there was a certain vitamin that was added so that when you sprayed this deodorant in your armpit, it applied a, you know, this vitamin to it as well. No other deodorant did that. That's really great, but there's a problem. Nobody really cares whether they get that vitamin in the armpit. Right? <laughs> and so the product failed. In other words, it's not enough just to be new or different. It's you have to be new and add value. And those are two very, very different things in the marketing world. Yeah, value is so important. And in the early phases, uh, it's great to see how you kind of phrase this because first and foremost, make sure you're solving a pain point. And I know dealing with our clients, and I've worked with over a thousand hardware startups in, in my day. And and generally, I would say the majority of them find a pain point in their own life, which is a great starting point, right? You 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 repeatedly are frustrated by something and you realize there's got to be a better way. And then you have that aha moment where your mind somehow puts the solution into it. Um, and then, of course, you want to broaden that out and, and make sure there's other people that, that are similarly minded. But of course, you have a massive planet of 7 billion people uh, that, that uh, probably or some may have that same problem. And that's where you realize you know, that. And that I, I like how that's kind of like your North Star. So you're focusing on that first. And then after that, you want to have a strategy in place. And uh, right. from what I heard you say, strategy and goals seem to be very tightly aligned. Um, they're kind of one in, in the other. Do you find that when you're, if you're, especially imagine as a hardware startup, is it good to set kind of quantifiable goals? Because you mentioned different types of goals. Like I want to get to market. I want people to see this, but does it help when you're, when you're framing, you know, using your tools, which you mentioned then are the four P's, which we'll get into, but starting with something to say, okay, I want to get a thousand units out, you know, within two years. Um, and, and that, you know, obviously you need more to your goal. But it does it. Do you find it helps with these companies to really put that vision numerically, uh, or there are, are there other best practices that you found that really help yeah. people succeed in achieving those goals? Well, that's that's a great question, and and the answer is probably yes, but not necessarily. The the, the broader question is, uh, or the issue is, how is creating a goal where you can tell whether or not you met it, right? So very often that's going to be numerically. Uh, but it, you know, I suppose there are cases where where uh, you could use other metrics as well. But you need some way to tell, you know, at the end of a year, were you successful or not? And if your if your strategy is um, is is phrased very vaguely, you know, like we want to be the best the best maker of X. Well, what does that mean? You know, your mother thinks it's the best, therefore you've achieved your goal. 
<laughs> so yeah, I think you need to set some goals where you can be where you're, they'll call your bluff. Now it doesn't mean that's the end of the world if you don't reach those goals. And the important thing is that a goal is just is actually, although we're talking about it as an endpoint, it's actually just an intermediate point because what you want to do is to be constantly uh, creating a feedback loop where you're getting feedback about your actions and whether or not they're working so that you can adjust them. And so nothing is set in stones. When you think about uh, direct marketing, for example, online direct marketing, it's, it's based on that premise of constantly improving the message by, for example, doing an A-B test. I don't know if, if your listeners know what that is, but an A-B test means that we take two two versions of the same message and we just make a maybe a slight alteration it could even be the size of, or color of the font in an ad we send those out to two groups of randomly you know the group of people that we split in half randomly and we see if one draws better than the other and based on that you know that that's what those marketers are doing they're constantly adjusting sometimes they even have automated programs to do that these days but my my point is that you don't have to be an online uh, communication specialist to do that. You should be, your product should always be in beta. And this is, I think, one of the biggest departures in marketing in the last 20 years. When people ask me, you know, what, what is the biggest thing? Of course, there's lots of them. It's hard to point your finger at one. But the, uh, the, the mindset that your product is always in beta which is a, you know, a concept that I think first came to us from software developers who under who figured out early on that if they could get their their best users to go through the code and spot mistakes, they would save an enormous amount of time and money. But in the process, they also build uh, an impassioned franchise of people because when you're helping to make these corrections, you become part of the product. And so to the extent that you can get your customers to give you input on the product, you're usually better off. And we can talk about some examples of that. Um, but most, many companies, and I will say a lot of companies are changing, but many companies, Apple is the ultimate culprit here. Uh, it's hard to argue with success, I guess, but I will. Uh, you know, they're famous for being incredibly secretive about releasing say their latest iPhone before it's absolutely perfect. Um, that strategy reflects actually, ironically more of an old fashioned mindset, which is we don't wanna release something before it's perfect. But you know, the fact is that your customers, if, if they're attentive and if they're really into what you're selling, they're gonna find not necessarily flaws in your product, but maybe opportunities to improve your product um, that you hadn't thought of. And so it actually makes sense for you to let them in under the kimono, so to speak, and to actually see what's going on and become part of the process. So that co-creation process is, I think, one factor that determines whether a startup or an existing company is going to be successful. Because by creating a, you know, by, by taking a legion of your, your best customers and turning them into almost into employees, you're practically guaranteeing a, a loyal base. So great example would be, let's say Lego, right? Lego was, uh, was about to declare bankruptcy, I think back in the seventies or so. Uh, today, it's a hugely successful company. And one of the reasons is that the insight they had to kind of 
retool the company to make it a place where users would find a community where they can suggest new applications for Lego products. And they have something like, I don't know, 10,000 people who, you know, who do this for them. And, uh, and there are other companies who do this as, as well. And, and so what they're doing is they're harnessing the power of their customers by not keeping them locked out. Yeah, and so powerful, especially at early stage companies or new products coming to the market because you have this incredible opportunity. Exactly. When you release your first version, especially if you're doing a short run or an additive manufacturing run, you have the opportunity to get a handful of units. We talk about this uh, regularly with our clients and a lot of the time on the show. Yeah. You don't need to try and sell a million units when you launch a product. In fact, I suggest try and sell a couple hundred, a few hundred, maybe a thousand most, yeah. then use that as your, your final testing bed, your final R&D bed before you then probably tool up or you know, do fairly expensive manufacturing or distribution or whatever else, marketing, of course, to then scale that product to the big leagues, but you're going to have a better product. And I love how you mentioned um, not just pain points, but opportunities, because that's one of the biggest pieces of feedback that any hardware startup is going to receive. It's what are all the alternative uses or maybe features that would create a home run out of your product that you just didn't see until you had real users all around the world trying your product and then giving you that real-time feedback. The other thing is it's also very easy when you only have a couple hundred customers to get feedback. First of all, it's free. Second of all, you could probably personally, as the owner of that product or the manager of that product, you could reach out to every single one of them and you'd get a number of them probably half of them that'll actually give you feedback one way or another, either via email or phone or whatever else. So you have this tremendous opportunity to just start small, start lean, learn from your customer, and then really scale it from there. And I also like how you say that it should always be in beta because that product, that life cycle of that circle should never end for a hundred years, never end. As you get that, maybe that bigger run to market, you do that process again every year or two to figure out what you're going to do for your next version of the product or a pro version, or even a cheaper version, or possibly accessory products, or even just something related to it that, that you didn't know about until getting that feedback from your customers. So it's a never ending, let's say, let's call it agile, if you want to, you know, again, leaning from your software uh, example, but if, it, if you wanted to take something and think of agile development in software, where you're essentially perpetually developing that and having a never ending continual feedback loop to make it an, an incredible product brand community and all the rest. Exactly. That, that's so crucial. And, and ironically, you know, if you, uh, we usually think that B2C and you know, business to consumer companies are kind of are more advanced in terms of their understanding of their, of the consumer, but ironically it, in a lot of B2B or business-to-business applications, that's where you see this. This has been going on for years. So, uh, for example, some data I saw, let's say, from the chemical and industrial chemical industry, they estimate that something like 70% of the ideas for new products in that industry were suggested by the customers of the chemical companies. And, wow. and, you know, in the same, I think similar uh, proportions for, let's say, the avi- aviation industry, you know, uh, uh, these because you're dealing with with the people who who know your product up and down and maybe the competing products as well. And they're in the best position to say something. And and so, yeah, I, but I just I did want to react to something you said before, if I if I could about starting, sure. starting out by recognizing the problem in your own life. 
Um, the the exception to that is, is and that and that often is is a very good place to start. But the problem that we have very often is is that uh, marketers tend to assume that they have the kind of customer they want to have rather than the customer they actually have. And so what we see is, and there's actually research that supports this, brand managers tend to assume, you know, if you think about you're managing X brand, whether it's your own or you work for a big company, um, and you ask people, who is, the, who is the core customer for this? Who uses this? People often tend to assume it's a clone of themselves. So they kind of see themselves there. But the reality is that there's lots of products out there that you may not have any use for yourself personally, but there could be a huge market for it. So uh, rather than just assuming that you have an insight into what people are going to want, because after all, you know what you want and everybody's pretty much like you, you know, not true, not true. So uh, you know, don't take for granted that your own insights are going to trump uh, your actual observations from people out there who are using the product. Well, and that comes back to your, you know, test and refine, right? Exactly. Think of your product as a beta test. Exactly. And that's where exactly. you go with a few units, yeah. test your theory uh, or, or, you know, do whatever way you want to, to whether it's A-B testing or consumer research groups or, you know, just getting prototypes into folks' hands or doing short production exactly. runs one way or another test your theory. Yeah. And then you know, either, beta, you know, scale up, scale down or change. Exactly. And, you know, to me, the one of the big ironies in marketing is that it's almost bad to succeed with a product because then you, you let you stop, you know, you say, okay, I did it. Check that box. You rest on your laurels. And before you know it, someone else has eaten your lunch because they found a better way to, uh, you know, not just a better way to do what you're doing, but a better solution to the product. So one example I actually use in, in one of my textbooks is, I guess, I guess you would say it's a hardware example. It has to do, uh, it has to do with, with a, uh, with a drill, an electric drill. Does that count? For sure. Okay. So, you, you know, you might say that, you know, that we have an expression, there's an old cliche in marketing customer companies make a three quarter inch drill bit, but, a but, a customer buys a three-quarter inch hole. And so the reason I like that example is you can have the best drill bit, you know, maybe it's better than the other guy's drill bit for some reason, or it's more durable or something. But now Kevin comes along and he's thought of the idea of, you know, what if we use a laser to drill that hole? It's cleaner and it doesn't require any effort, et cetera. So no matter how good my drill bit is, if you come along with a different solution, that provides the same benefit. You know, I can keep innovating drill bits for the rest of my life. I'm never going to succeed. So again, start with the benefits that people are looking for, not the attributes of the product, because there's a lot of different ways to get the same benefit. Yeah, love that. So can you just break down for us the the four P's um, and, uh, and, and any kind of notes around those uh, so that uh, we can understand kind of what they are and then any feedback that you have from your experience around them. Uh, well, sure. You know, the, it's, it's, it's been kind of a mnemonic, uh, frankly, for teaching students for many, many years, because it's easy to remember and all that. Um, you know, I, again, you could, we can get into the weeds on whether there's only four P's or whether there's eight P's and all that. But the, but the point is that you want to uh, position your offering in the marketplace 
it's always relative to what else is out there, right? So it's not just your brand, it's how do people see your brand relative to what else is out there. Um, you can you can do this, you know, you're, you're, you can do this at home. <laughs> you can just create a little grid where, you, you know, you might think of, let's say, the two most important uh, features of your product and see if you can plot all of the different competitors on there. That's how sometimes you provide, you uh, identify marketing opportunities because maybe there's a sweet spot where nobody is, is there right now. You know? And I actually think that's a great exercise, um, doing the 4P grid and plotting your product. And, and I like how you mentioned one or two key features because that's a big thing we talk yeah. about on the show is feature creep. You know, let's bring exactly. it down, yeah. focus on what, what's the one or the two amazing yeah. things that, you, that you're changing. You know, you talk about innovation, disrupting the industry, you use the laser <laughs> cutting a whole example, right? right so right. most inventors and product startups, I mean, we want you to be the folks coming up with that disruptive technology that, that, that cuts, you know, gets the solution that they want, which is your three quarter inch hole, but does it in a maybe better, more efficient, cleaner, whatever way. Um, so, uh, Michael, if you can explain, I know a lot of people are on audio, but just help them uh, walk them through uh, that 4P uh, chart so that they could actually run through this exercise at home. Yeah, sure. So, uh, you know, what, what you're talking, you, I like that you said something about feature creep. Let's talk about that in the context of the, the first P, which is product, most relevant to your audience, obviously. And, um, you know, we, we assume, so, so obviously the offering itself is, is an important part of, of all, all of this. You, if you don't have a product that works, you probably shouldn't be selling it. Um, but we know that people, you know, as I like to say, people don't buy products because of what they do. They buy them because of what they mean. And that, that's something that a lot of product marketers lose sight of. So when people are buying the product, they're buying a, a package of, of a bundle of things, only one of which is a physical, even if there is a physical product in some cases, there isn't if it's say a service like like say an interior design service that might use hardware products. Um, feature creep. What that means is that that over the years, a lot of people have have assumed that the way they're going to uh, to differentiate themselves is by adding more features, and that somehow more features equals better. And ironically, from a consumer psychology perspective the exact opposite is true. What we find is that we like, everybody likes to feel that they have choices up to a point. But you re, after you reach that saturation point, what we find is that when people are given too many choices, they, just, they often just throw up their hands and say, I can't, I, this is too much for me to process. And, and frankly, I'm not that interested in how many brands of drills there are. So I'm not going to buy anything or I'm just going to buy the one I saw first or something. And so what we see is that um, that in some cases, like in automotive, for example, like, you know, I think some companies like Toyota, you know, at one point, if you're going to buy the car, you could literally customize it with hundreds of different, you know, you could configure it with hundreds of different ways. A lot of people just found that to be too daunting. And so they've, they've simplified it. They've brought it back down so that, yes, you, you have some choices, but you don't have every possible choice in the universe because we don't actually want that. Our brains are not able to process that information. And so we actually make poor choices the more choices that we have. Very interesting. Yeah, yeah. So, 
so that's but that's you know pr- product obviously is a, is a, is the first p i guess um you know then you've got your other decisions to make so place means basically distribution where are people going to obtain the product um you know nowadays your your fundamental distinction decision is online versus offline um as i talk about in my latest book that's actually an artificial distinction because today all products should be both online and offline uh because that's where your customers are but uh other decisions there you know in terms of distribution uh you know if and we we all know this if you you can buy the same product at um at at a uh, a low uh, low end store or a high end store, but you assume it's nicer if it came from the high end store. You know, and sometimes there are people who save their shopping bags from fancy department stores and put their gifts in those bags to make them look better, right? Uh, <laughs> so, so actually, the way you distribute something, where you distribute it, how you distribute it, is not just a matter of logistics. It's also a marketing decision because it becomes part of the image of your product. Where people buy it is part of what they're buying. So that's your, briefly, is your place P. Uh, what's the next one? Price, we've talked about that a little bit. Again, it's not just a matter of necessarily of saying, well, I'm gonna you know, see what my costs are and then mark up the product by 5%. Often price is a strategic, is, is a tool or a tactical tool that we use to make a statement about what people are buying. So, uh, for example, you know, we, your listeners all know the basic law of supply and demand. Generally, you lower the price, you raise, you increase demand, right? Not always the case. And so, for example, with high-end jewelry and so on, uh, at at least anecdotally, I've been told that, you know, you might have a a bracelet sitting in your store for, I'm making up numbers, $100, it doesn't sell. It doesn't sell. So you're tempted to, to cut the price to $70. But it turns out if you instead change the price to $170, you sell more. Why is that? Because people assume in that category, all things equal, if it's a higher price, it must be better quality. And we've talked about this a bunch on the show, especially because most of our listeners are working on something that is innovative, proprietary, solves a pain point. So the last thing you want to do is sell yourself short when you're now creating extra value in the market. And not only because of the fact that, you know, in theory, because you've created an improved value product, you're worth more, but you're talking about it from a marketing perspective, a psychology perspective from the buyer, where they will actually potentially want it more simply because you're pricing it at a premium price, which of course leads to something we also talk about regularly on the show, which is really important to any startup and that's margins. So the higher your price, the better the margins, of course. So why wouldn't you at least start at that point? Something else that we've also mentioned uh, a few times that's really important to bring home is that you can easily reduce your price. It is almost impossible to increase your price. That's true. That, that's true. But, but this is another great example of putting the cart before the horse. So first, you've got to decide what kind of image you want for your brand. You know, Do you want it to be a premium brand? Not all new brands have to be premium brands. For sure. If they're not, and if, as you say, their margin is much lower, how are they going to make the money? Well, obviously, it's volume. So if it's a volume play, your pricing decision may be quite different, even though it's the exact same product. So again, it's a strategic, it's related to your strategic objectives, not to just 
what feels good about the price. Right. It all comes back to that strategy and your goals, right? Which is all stemming down from, you know, the value you've created or the innovation, you know, the need essentially that you've created. So that leads us to our final P, uh, which uh, I believe is promotion, if I remember right. Okay. (laughs) My personal favorite P because it has to do with, with communications and communicating and letting people know about your value proposition. Uh, because you can have the best product in the world. And this is I really true, I think, for startups. You know, you may genuinely have a superior solution, but if nobody knows about it or nobody believes you, you're, you're, you might as well not bother. So the, the fourth P of promotion means how do, you know, how do we communicate what's in our minds, which is I have a solution that is awesome. How do I get that into your head? You know, I'm not Mr. Spock from Star Trek. I can't just do a mind meld where I put my thoughts into your head. I need to, uh, I need to, to choose what media I'm going to use. I need, you know, who says the message is often as important as what the message says, uh, where we see it, what kind of medium, what kind of symbolism, even what kind of colors that, that we use. So to give you an example in, in hardware, um, I know you're, you're familiar with DeWalt. And, um, you know, what, what was their big innovation? Well, I'm not a product expert on, on hardware, but the color that they chose for their products, that bright yellow, what does that do? Well, it, they're, they're using an element of packaging to create, in, in, presumably in service of some longer term goal to differentiate their product, maybe make it more like a consumer friendly product because it's not black, it's yellow what have you. I wasn't involved in that decision, so I don't know. But there's a great example where a hardware, you know, a tool maker has been successful. I'm not saying it's the only reason, but they deliberately, I assume, chose that color as a way to make a statement and to stand out on the shelf. So that's a tactical decision, not a strategic one, but it's it's probably made in the service of a strategy. Full circle to what you said early on in this discussion, which is, you know, eventually if you market well enough that that you don't need to you don't need to sell anymore. The product essentially sells itself, and that's something. If you look at that example with the Walt, it's iconic now. Those colors are iconic. You can just look from a hundred feet within the store and know that that shelf is full of Dewalt tools, and you have a certain you know frame of reference to that in terms of quality and whatnot that they've developed over the years. A very conscious marketing decision that they made. Um, to keep it simple, but to, you know, uh, position their product in a certain way. So, you know, now that we're looking at these four P's, the key is that you can, at home, you can do this exercise with your own product, starting, I think, as, as you mentioned, I actually like this, Michael, because um, I think this is a, u- a unique way to position this exercise. Don't focus on your product, focus on the one feature that you have, or one or two. I mean, do maybe even do this separately for your two features. So don't say my widget ABC, but say my widget's solves this problem. Now, where in price, place, promotion, and product, where are the other competitors or alternative products in the market and how can you beat them? And that will really position you well to say, you know what, I've got a, I've got a winning ticket here or, you know, this, this space looks crowded. Yeah. And that, you know, just that simple exercise, Kevin, you're right. I mean, it, it's, it's not just an academic thing. You know, it, it, when you see, when you plot things visually, I feel you can often see things much more clearly. So, so for example, back uh, in the 70s, my under, again, I wasn't involved in this, but my understanding is that Budweiser did 
an analysis like this. It's called a perceptual map. And when they did this, uh, this is what helped them to recognize that there was an untapped market, and that's for low-calorie beer. And Bud Light was introduced as a result of an exercise just like this, pretty much. Wow, powerful. Maybe a little more sophisticated, but the basic idea, just identify you know, who does what you do and who doesn't do what you do, et cetera. You know, that can be really, really groundbreaking, I think. And Michael, your new book, it really, it, it brings a lot of these principles, but referring to, you know, what's happening in modern days it, with modern marketing now, can you talk a bit about, uh, about that? Yeah, absolutely. So the new, my new book is called The New Chameleons. And I chose that metaphor because, you know, as, as you know, a chameleon changes its colors in response to external changes, you know, temperature, et cetera. Uh, and we con consumers today, many of us, especially younger ones, but many of many of us are like chameleons. We don't change our color, but we change our identities. We change who we are throughout the course of a day. We're, we're constantly trying new things. And our our, our culture, both the technology and, and the way our society is, is evolving and, and, and fragmenting and splitting into all kinds of different subgroups and so on, uh, makes it much more difficult to do the, the traditional market segmentation that, that was actually pioneered by General Motors back in the early part of the last century when they created divisions like Buick and Oldsmobile and Cadillac for people with different incomes. Today, we, uh, you know, and so many, many, many companies jumped on the bandwagon and it worked quite well in the 50s and 60s because we were a largely homogeneous society. And we only had three, maybe four television stations. I'm sure Canada was, was quite similar. Um, so everybody was pretty much exposed to the same stuff and used the same products. Now, you fast forward to today, totally out the window. We have a very fragmented society. Uh, you know, there's thousands of cable TV stations on uh, with catering to all kinds of obscure tastes and so on. So these traditional, th this notion that we put people into a broad category, like, let's say, women in their 30s or something, and think we understand them and, th and that all women in their 30s are similar, that's an assumption that can be very dangerous today. So when I talk in the book about the, the new chameleons and the subtitle is how to connect with consumers who defy categorization, what we see is that a lot of people today are defying that. That is, they don't want to be part of a market segment. They're individuals and they're borrowing stuff from all kinds of different places. Uh, you know, a, I guess, a, you know, a good analogy is just thinking even about what we eat in the, in the modern world today, right? We have all kinds of ethnic uh, you know, options available that we didn't have 20 or 30 years ago. Uh, Toronto is a city that's you know, great for you know, tons of, of ethnic restaurants, anything you want. Um, you go to these massive buffets, these international buffets. I don't know if this will happen after COVID, but what you're doing is you're putting on your plate, you know, you're putting Italian food next to Mexican food, next to Chinese food. People are just mixing it all together. And that is the way marketing is working today. So we no longer have the luxury of just saying, my customer is a woman in her 30s, therefore, you know, I know all about her. Because let's say I'm a woman in her 30s, if I'm the brand manager. Well, every one of those customers, you know, if you say to them, and I say this to my students sometimes, they'll say, look, so 
you're all college students in your 20s living in a certain area, going to a private liberal arts school in, in a city, blah, blah, blah. Therefore, you're all the same, right? You all are, you know, I don't need to understand your specific tastes. Now, as you can imagine, they don't like that very much. And they really <laughs> push back as your customers will. So what, what I talk about in the book is, is some of the basic assumptions that we've made over the years of putting, assigning people labels and thinking that we understand them and talking about how the, some of those labels have gone away. So an example of one that I think is very relevant here is the dichotomy between producers and consumers. You're either a producer of the product or you're a consumer of the product. Well, we already talked about Lego and co-creation, and we know that, you know, today that that distinction is practically meaningless, right? You've got listeners out there who have become taxi drivers. Maybe they're driving for Lyft on the side. Maybe they're in the hotel business because they rent out their place on Airbnb. You know, may, maybe they they sell uh, products, you know, like, like uh, cosmetics, like Mary Kay and Amway, some of those direct selling companies. They be housewives are becoming business people and making millions. So there's an example of, of a dichotomy. You know, again, the traditional companies say, I'm the producer, you're the consumer, arm's length. But the new, the newer companies, you know, the that have this newer perspective say, that's a boundary that doesn't exist anymore. We want to bring you in to, to co-create. So uh, so there I go through the book in each chapter, I basically talk about uh, one of these really, really basic dichotomies and why we can't use that anymore. So I talk about, for example, male versus female. You know, we have a lot of conversations in our culture now about what it means to be male. Is there such a thing as male versus female or are people on a continuum, right? Lots of discussion about that. Uh, I mentioned another earlier, online versus offline. Which way do I go? You know, do I sell online or offline? No, you sell both because your customers are on both at the same time. You know, when I, when I, when I look at, when I lecture to my students or I'm giving a keynote to an industry group, you know, half of them are sitting there looking at their phones. I used to get offended by that, but now I recognize they can't, they're addicted to it. They're always going to be online while I'm talking to them. So they're both online and offline at the same time. And that's what your strategies need, need to reflect. So anyway, I go, as I go through the book, I talk about a, a number of these and why it's so important to abandon this, these basic things that we take for granted. And when you do that, that's where new product opportunities tend to, tend to arise. So for example, uh, your listeners might want to think about the, you know, generally speaking, if they're competing in a category, it's a well-defined category, some kind of hardware, they know who their direct competitors are, et cetera. So when they innovate, it's likely to be only a small modification to what is already out there in that vertical. But what happens when we take two different verticals and we say, you know what, let's create a new category that's a hybrid of those two. So, for example, if you look at automotive design, you've got uh, you've got sedans, right? You've got convertibles and all that. But then you have this brand new thing called a minivan. And a mini, when you think about when Chrysler introduced the minivan, that was a that created a brand new category, right? And then everybody had it. You know, they were the first movers in that market. They had a huge advantage. Uh, that market gets saturated. What do we see today? We see SUVs and SUV crossovers 
that word crossover tells you that it's a hybrid category. So well, and it's so it's so powerful these days to look for those opportunities and niches and new markets because yeah. you know when you have this global marketplace, like you said, when the lines are blurring, when there's new categories, when there's different types of uh, individuals and different types of unique scenarios that are being created, that creates opportunity, and that's an incredible, incredibly powerful thing if you can take. That opportunity. I think one of our clients, uh, Go Fish, I think of them and, and they created an underwater fishing camera. So you already had GoPro out there and you already had underwater cameras, but they essentially merged the two and created an underwater fishing camera and it became hugely successful. And then they, they, then they sold and you know, did very well from there. But it, it's amazing to see that as this global market emerges, as innovators and inventors listening here, you should be looking for those gaps, doing your four Ps and finding where you're creating a new market or filling a new void, and then really making an incredible business out of that. Uh, as you see these yeah. gaps that the bigger companies may not have enough attention, or like you said, they may be still stuck kind of in some of the older ways. They may not understand some of the, the, the some of the dichotomy of what's happening moving forward. You can, so you can be the one to take advantage of that before they do, right? And that, that's what's yeah. so powerful here. I think that's a really crucial observation for startups um, because, you know, it is like turning a battleship, you know, for these big companies to innovate sometimes. Uh, but often, you know, if you're, if you're just going, if you're just going head to head with the biggest guy out there, well, that's, that's pretty tough. But if you're in a place that no one has found yet, you know, uh, I, I like, you know, there's an expression I kind of like it uh, in the land of the blind, the one eyed man is king. So when you think about that, you know, it, you don't have to be the dominant figure in an industry, but you could be the dominant figure in a niche where no one else is there, at least yet. And like you said, too, it can just be a small improvement or alteration that has a need for it. It has a market that yet hasn't yet been tapped. It doesn't need to be a completely revolutionary new entire product with a ton of feature creep. It could be just one simple improvement, one isolated feature that really solves that pain point. Coming back to the thing you said is first and fo foremost, right? Like make sure you're solving a need exactly. and exactly. then develop your strategy and your four Ps from there. Well, Michael, it's been great to have you on the show. Uh, where can people buy the book if they if they want to well, read it? Uh, they, well, the book's available on Amazon and, and all the other book selling sites. It's just, it's called The New Chameleons. And, uh, you know, if anyone wants to reach out to me, um, my website is just michaelsolomon.com and my email predictably is michael at michaelsolomon.com. Great. Well, thanks again for being on the show. Yeah. Thanks for having me. It was fun. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of the Product Startup Podcast, the show that teaches you what it really takes to bring your product to market and turn it into a big success. This podcast series is brought to you by Maco Design and Invent, the original and leading firm in North America to provide global caliber end-to-end -end physical consumer product development to startups, inventors, and small product business clients. If you're looking for product development help on your invention, head over to macodesign.com. That's M-A-K-O design.com for a free consultation from one of Maco Design's four design studios from coast to coast. Thanks for listening and see you next time.